Father, we come to you as your children. We come to you as your students. We come to you as your disciples. Father, we want to understand more about you. We want to glorify you and worship you in deeper ways. And so we ask, Lord, that you come now, that you fill our minds and our hearts with your spirit, that you grant us understanding of what you want us to learn, what you want to tell us this morning. We pray, Lord, against all distractions, against our minds wandering, and we ask, Lord, that you'd come and you'd minister to us and fill us with the capacity to worship you and to glorify you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Today's message, as you've noticed in the bulletin, is about purpose. Finding purpose in Christ. Now we've seen in the book of Genesis, and prior to that in the series on Exodus, that Moses and Abraham, and later of course David, and all the prophets and patriarchs, eventually fulfilled God's purposes for which he created them. And it's the same for each one of you. God has made you for a purpose. He's made you for a reason. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. He's made you for a purpose. It's a purpose firmly rooted in Christ. Now, for some time, the leadership team, the Board of Deacons, we have been seeking the Lord for his direction. We've been concerned with wanting to be in step with his purpose with his grace in our personal lives as well as the life of our church. And so I found that um, John Piper summarizes this very well when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll read it again. It's kind of an odd saying. But God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. When you're in fellowship, when you're in in love and worship, serving in his presence, you're filled with a sense of contentment, completeness. That's when God becomes glorified because of his work done in you. This applies to our church as well. God is most glorified in this church, Snowden Baptist, when we as a church community are most satisfied in him, when we are serving him, when we're enjoying his fellowship and his presence. Now, sometimes followers of Christ, and we should call ourselves disciples, stumble over questions such as, okay, Lord, you've forgiven me, you've given me new life, and I'm grateful, and I love you. But what happens now in my life? How am I supposed to live out my life for you in ways that you want? What is your purpose for me? What is your purpose for our church? Why are we gathering? Well, later on we're going to return to these questions because the place to find answers always begins with finding God in his word. So I want to come with me as we walk through 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 as we learn about God's purposes. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that passage. Now as we begin, just a word of, uh, of background here about Timothy. 
The Bible tells us a lot about this man named Timothy. He was a disciple of the Apostle Paul and later became a trusted partner in Paul's ministry, particularly in caring for churches. In fact, church history tells us that Timothy became the first bishop of the church at Ephesus, where he died. We first meet Timothy back in the book of Acts. Imagine this. The Apostle Paul is on a second missionary journey. He's passing through uh, the Galatia region. He comes down to Lystra and Iconium. And the believers there say, Paul, there's a young man here named Timothy. We recommend him to you. That's quite something to be recommended to the Apostle Paul. And so from that day onward, Paul took Timothy with him. He mentored him. He discipled him. He helped prepare Timothy for the ministry which Christ would give him. Because Timothy was saved for a purpose, not just for the simple act of being saved. In fact, in Philippians, we capture a glimpse of how Paul and others viewed Timothy. Paul wrote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. He was sending Timothy to the church of Philippi to come back to Paul and tell him what's going on. And this is how Paul describes Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son of the Father he has served me in the gospel. There's an intimacy, a closeness between Paul and Timothy. It's seen in the very first verses of our chapter today, in verse 2. As he addresses Timothy, he calls Timothy, my beloved child, or my dear son in the NIV. Just a tenderness. And Paul begins his letter talking about that tenderness, that memory. But he also exhorts Timothy to live out the purpose for which God gave him. The other important element here is to realize where Paul was. Paul was sitting in a prison cell in Rome. After his fourth missionary journey, he was arrested, and he's sitting in, a, in an area that's not accessible, not like the first imprisonment he had in Rome, where he had visitors. Now Paul was alone. He was abandoned by many, and he sensed that his death was now approaching. Church history tells us that he wrote 2 Timothy between 64 and 66 AD. And then in 66 AD, Paul was executed by the Roman Emperor Nero. So Paul had previously sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus to carry out pastoral work. And now Timothy's writing this perhaps last letter to him, sharing with him what's on his heart. So we join Paul in verse 3. In this small section of verses 3 to 5, in which Paul uh, gives great affection as he thanks God for Timothy. As we go along in these verses, I want you to look for three things. I want you to look for the word remember or reminded. We look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, forefathers in the NIV that was read, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Paul describes his service of God in two ways. 
And I mention this for a reason because I'm going to pick up this thread a little bit later. He says, I served God as did my ancestors, as my forefathers. The idea of service here is a continual, habitual activity of worship in his life. And so Paul is saying, I'm doing this in the same way my ancestor did, just as they served God. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. He's a friend of God. We know from Galatians that Paul points out that righteousness precedes the Jewish law. And so Paul walks within this heritage of faith, obedience, and worship, just as his forefathers did. The second way he describes how he serves God is with a clear conscience. Now, a clear conscience is something hard to get a hold of. It means no internal accusations, no should've or could've, no guilt or remorse. It's an inner peace granted only by God through a spirit dwelling within him. And a clear conscience abides only in Christ. Now, we know back in Romans 3 that Paul talks about how there's no one who's righteous, not even one. So when he says, I have a clear conscience, I'm serving God with a clear conscience, this isn't a personal boast. It's not an arrogant witness to his own righteousness. Rather, it's the only way that Paul or we can say that we have a clear conscience is because of Christ giving us that conscience that is clear, doesn't accuse us anymore of sin and guilt because it's been dealt with on the cross. Never forget, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now we can focus on Paul, the reasons why he says, I thank God. And there are three. And they flow through the verses three, four, and five. He says, I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. One thing you'll notice I will do in this, in this text today is I will take out, when I'm reading, certain modifying clauses. The main point of Paul here is, I thank God as I remember you in my prayers night and day. Makes it a little clearer when we read it that way. So Paul is saying that you're always in my heart, always in my mind, and as you are, I'm praising God for you. We can do that. We can think of loved ones, people not here, people we know, and we pray for them, and as we pray, we thank God because of who they are. The second way that he thanks God is another memory. As I remember, I thank God as I remember your tears. I long to see you that you may be, I may be filled with joy. We know from this that at some point when Paul left Timothy, Timothy was upset. He was crying. He had tears. We're not quite sure when this parting took place. It may have been in Acts 20 when Paul left the church at Ephesus, or at a later date. But in any case, Paul reflects on that moment, that great love between Paul and his adopted son, Timothy. And these memories fill him with a longing to see him. Remember, Paul's in prison, a dungeon, and he thinks back and he thanks God because of Timothy. The other way that he thanks God, in verse 5, is a slight change here. He says, I'm reminded, I'm causing to remind you of your sincere faith. And here's a modifying clause. Uh, your sincere faith, 
a faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. A sincere faith is genuine, honest, no hypocrisy, no wavering, not for show. It's genuine, it's sincere. Not only does he describe Timothy's faith as sincere, but he links it to his grandmother and his mother. Back in verse 3, Paul said, I serve God as my forefathers have served God. Timothy, you're serving as your foremothers have served. You know, last Sunday was Mother's Day. But every time a mother lives her faith in her family, she's shaping her children. We know Timothy's mother was a Jewish believer in Jesus, that his father was a Greek. We have no idea if his father believed or not, just that his mother did. Now, there are many cases in which it is the mother and the family who carries the flame of Christ for the family. It is a reality that some in this church face, that they're the lone influencer in their family for Jesus. I want to be encouraged. If you ever get discouraged about, you know, I seem to be alone here, I'm a single mom, or my husband's not involved in faith at all, and I'm trying to witness for Christ and the family in the best way I can, raise my kids in the faith, be encouraged. Look at Timothy. Paul says, your grandmother believed, your mother believed, and then you believe. No mention of his father, of his dad. They influenced Timothy to faith, and in turn, Timothy affected many, many people as a church leader. So their influence was far beyond their own son and grandson. Now Paul here says, I am persuaded, I am sure that that faith dwells in you as well. But if you're reading carefully, notice something here. Paul could have said, I'm reminded of your, of your sincere faith and that it dwells in you the same way as your mother. But he says, now I am sure. He puts this little phrase, I am sure. A commentator named Kostenberger noted that Paul does not take Timothy's transparently real faith for granted. He knows that it is possible that external faith can masquerade as inner bankruptcy. You've got to realize, Paul has been serving for 20 years. He's suffered. And he's seen people who name Christ turn away from the gospel, who looked really good on the outside, but ended up turning away. He's alone in prison because people have abandoned him for various reasons. And so he says, you know, I'm not doubting your faith, Timothy, but I'm also aware of the dangers and pressures that can hinder or neutralize faith. So after these verses of thanksgiving, Paul now turns in the letter to exhorting Timothy. And we see this in verses 6 and 7. For this reason, because of your faith, your sincere faith, I remind you now, Timothy. I'm now causing you to remember, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now the question I have, I looked at this, was, well, what gift is he referring to? What was Timothy's gift? And searching the scriptures, there's various places where it talks about Timothy and what he did. And in one case, Paul wrote in the first letter to Timothy this, Until I come, until I, Paul, come to you at Ephesus, 
devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And this is interesting. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. From this we learn three things. Paul's gift revolved around God's word. He was to read it, to teach it, to preach it. That was his gift. And remember, gifts are always given by God for the benefit of others. Not for you to hold, but to give away. We learn that Timothy was commissioned by a council of elders as they prayed for Timothy. And that Paul was present as well. We also learn that Timothy is not to neglect his gift. So Paul seems to remind Timothy on a regular basis in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy not to neglect the gift, but to fan it into flame. So it is possible to be given a gift from God, but then to neglect it. Because Timothy is no different than any of us. You could be sitting here and you could be thinking to yourself, you know, I think God has given me a gift, but I'm not using it. I'm, I'm sitting on it. I don't know how to use it. Uh, I, I think I should, but I don't know what to do. So I'm, in essence, neglecting that gift. It could be neglected, abandoned, ignored, set aside, because it's too hard to use, it's inconvenient, it costs you too much, or you grow tired. I've been doing this for 15 years and I'm getting tired. Paul says, fan into flame that gift. Because here's the point. God gives gifts in part to fulfill his purposes for you. God made you for a purpose. He gives you the ability to live out that purpose. He gives you the gifts that are required to do that. So Paul reminds Timothy of this danger that exists by not flanning into flame. So we see, for this reason, I'm reminded to fan into flame the gift of God. To fan into flame. This means to, to stir up a smoldering fire. To become a living flame again. You've all been at a campfire or a fireplace and the fire's dying down, the embers are just glowing and they're starting to go out. What do you do? You put a little log of wood on it. And what happens? A bit of air and it bursts into flame. In, B- in BC, they have forest fires every year and they have to make sure everything's out completely. Even a small few embers in the forest will reignite that forest fire. It takes a lot to put out a fire. And it takes a lot to put out the gift of God. Now, Paul's statement does not necessarily mean uh, that the fire should always be stoked to full flame. Because in the ancient world, you kept coals, and when you needed them, you stoked them into flame for dinner or for heat at night. But the point is you keep the flame and the coals alive. Now, perhaps this morning, you're tired from serving your gifts. Maybe you're just fed up with it. Perhaps you were once actively involved in the church, and now you just sort of drifted away. You're not really doing anything anymore. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, to be honest, I'm not really sure what God has given me. Well, we'll look at that question later on. For now, I want to look at how Paul says we should fan into flame the gift, because he does say it in verse 7. And I'm going to read this taking out the modifying clause. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
We fan into flame the gift of God by power, love, and self-control from him doing it. The first thing is he doesn't give us a spirit of fear. Paul writes in Romans 8.15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, fear is a potential reason that can dampen a flame. It puts the flame out. I'm afraid to use it. I'm afraid to step up. So it can put out the flame. Instead, God provides, and notice, Paul says, for this reason I remind you to fan the flame, but God has given us, all of us, not just you, Timothy, all of us, a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. The power, the empowerment to keep yourself on track. The empowerment to serve in the gifts that God has given you. The love that motivates us to serve. Gives us a purpose, a reason why we're doing this. Because it's for God, not for what we get from it. And the self-control which protects against pride or misuse of one's gifts. It's a sad reality, and we've all seen it, that there are some very gifted preachers who have fallen away from the true gospel. They've used the gift God has given them, not with self-discipline, but for their own purposes. Now for Timothy, there was the ever-present danger of persecution and suffering, just as Paul himself was writing from a prison cell because he refused to stop proclaiming the gospel. And so we come to this last section to experience his own purpose and grace. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel of the power of God. Why would Timothy be ashamed of the gospel? What would tempt him? Why would Paul write this? Particularly in terms of Paul's sitting in prison. I'll give you an illustration. How do you feel when somebody who is uh, caught in the media, they're caught in sin and they're a Christian, and people look at that and say, oh, that's Christians for you. How do you respond to that? Do you correct it or do you kind of just be quiet? See, Paul is in prison for the gospel. If you preach the gospel as well, then you're associated with Paul. Paul's a criminal. No one wants to be a criminal. Therefore, people are quiet. They walked away from Paul. He's in prison. You know, uh, I don't want to be associated with that. And that's a reality in many countries in the world that face persecution. Christians have decisions to make about how they're going to, to live their lives. Because the cost, what others think, our own uncertainties and weaknesses. This is another one. How many of you have had a bad day at work with a family and you think, oh, I'm around non-Christians and I'm a really bad example to them today. I've said the wrong thing or I behave in the wrong way. I'd just rather not be associated with the gospel for the moment because I'm a bad example. I'm ashamed. Not of the gospel, but of who I am as a follower. Or perhaps there's outright persecution and suffering. People speak against you in a certain way. And Paul says, you're supposed to share in the suffering. It's part of living the gospel. And it's not by our own power or ability. It's by the power of God. God saved us. 
But he did something else. He also called us. He called you to a holy calling. Not because of our works, not because of what you've done, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's power is demonstrated in his saving you and bringing you into faith. But he's also called you to a holy calling or a holy life as the NIV has it. God sets you apart to serve him, to have a purpose. And God distributes gifts of service that are part of his purpose for you. Remember, God gives gifts to in part fulfill your purpose. And it's not according to works. Most Christians have that down. Okay, we know I'm not saved according to works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because God has given us purpose and grace before the ages began. Now, sometimes purpose is not realized in its fullest extent so much later. Pastor Brent mentioned in his message on Lot that Lot was saved for a purpose, God's purpose. Abraham and Sarah were preserved in their integrity of their married life so that their son Isaac would be their son, God's purpose. Despite what they did, God intended, this is my purpose. Whether you're involved in it or not, it's going to happen. It's better to be involved. They're all examples of God's grace. That he already decided long ago this was going to happen. Because God gives his purpose before the ages began, before eternity passed. That God has always had this in mind for you. It's given in the past, and now it is received and manifested by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has finished the work on the cross and your holy calling comes from him. We can't give ourselves, we can't save ourselves, we can't give ourselves purpose and a holy calling. Further, Paul says that Jesus abolished death, that is, he annulled it. It's inoperative, made inactive. And he brought to life, which is the present. He's given you life now and in the future, immortality. All brought through the gospel. So I want us to pause just for a second here. So I want you to grasp how amazing this is. Do you realize that, that God has a purpose for you? That the one who made the universe and everything in it, seen and unseen, has a purpose for you? This, this alone should astonish you. That he decided this long before you even existed. Before the world began, he already knew this was going to happen. He knew where you would fit into his plan to bring him glory. Wouldn't anyone want to know their purpose? So Paul continues on, as a good preacher does, and he applies this to himself, and then to Timothy, and that's in verses 11 to 12. Paul says, I was appointed a teacher, or a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And that's why I'm suffering. God made me for a purpose. That was to proclaim the gospel, to plant churches as an apostle, and to disciple people as a teacher. You know, when Paul was a young rabbinical student in Jerusalem, studying, memorizing, and living up the Torah, he could never have imagined God's greater purpose for him. He thought God's purpose for him was to be a rabbi, 
And God said, no, that's just part of it. It's just a beginning. I have much more for you that's going to form who you are. But your purpose is going to be much greater than that. It's going to be to proclaim my gospel. And the consequence has been suffering. As soon as Paul came a believer in the road to Damascus, within a very short order in Damascus, he was persecuted. They wanted to kill him. He knew from right at the beginning that he would be having to suffer for the gospel. But what does he say to Timothy? This is his letter to Timothy, not to himself. It's a letter to Timothy. And he says, but you know, Timothy, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We sang this in the songs before the message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I'm convinced. I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day, until judgment day, until the end, what God has entrusted to me. And so now he takes that and he turns it to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, in the last few verses, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God entrusted Timothy with his grace and purpose, along with the ability empowered by the Spirit to worship God through these gifts. Now, a trust is not your possession. A trust is something that he gives you to hold. You hold it on behalf of another person. And thus an accounting must be given at some point. And so as a consequence of salvation, we are to invest and share this trust of the gospel through the Holy Spirit as he manifests within us the gifts that he's given us. How are we to guard this? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The idea here is human effort is urged, but it's in reliance on divine enablement. Putting yourself in a place where God can fill you with protection. We've seen in these verses that God grants us purpose in Christ. We've heard Paul explain his own purpose, and he, even as he reminds Timothy of his own purpose and the need to fan into flame the gift of God. So let's turn it to ourselves now. How does this fit with you and with our church? What is your purpose? When I began this message, I mentioned that uh, the leadership team, we've been talking about this, we've been seeking the Lord over what is his direction for us, what does he want us to do. And so I'm concluding this morning by sharing a little bit about our discussions. Our purpose is expressed in two ways. By living out the purpose of our church and by living out your purpose within our church. And our mission statement, which is printed on the front of your bulletin every Sunday, it's there, I don't know if you read it or not, but it's there. This is our mission statement, developed by our forefathers in the faith and put in the paper. The mission of our church is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus of all peoples and to build a vibrant multicultural community of believers in Montreal. But how do we do that? How do we fulfill that? mandate well this morning in your in your bulletin by now you've looked at it you were given an insert take out the insert and turn to the chart 
looks like this. On one side is an explanation, because as soon as I stop talking, you'll forget I ever said anything this morning. But on this side, this is a, this is a kind of a picture of where we see ourselves as a church. We see ourselves as a church fulfilling three purposes. To worship God, number one. That's why we're here, is to worship God. The second is discipleship in the Lord. It's how we plan to grow in the faith, to worship the Lord. And the last one, the last horizontal grayed out area, is outreach. Bringing others to worship and grow in the faith. It's a very simple, and it's not new, it's right out of, of uh, the Great Commission. But it's a way of looking and picturing our church. Now notice, under each of those horizontal headings say worship, there's listed ministries. Not everything is listed there, because many things are happening that you can't possibly put on one slide. The point is this, that as we strive to worship God as a church, there are ministries that will grow up to support that. Ministries that can change, develop, based upon the gifts God has given you. That's the beauty of it. Because we fulfill these purposes based upon what God has given each of us. In discipleship, children's ministries. You know, people in the nursery and, and looking after the babies, that's discipleship. They are looking after their kids so their parents can worship. And their kids will have a, a track record, a heritage of faith, like Timothy, like Kathleen. She said she was a baby in this church. She probably was in that very room at some point. And now look at her going to Brazil. So those efforts are discipleship. Adult ministry, visitation, pastoral care, these are all ways that we serve each other and help each other grow in the faith. Outreach, the welcoming team. That's a new thing. How'd that happen? Because somebody had an idea. Natalie said, you know, I, I, wanna, I think we should do this. Okay, God gifted her to do this. And so we begin to have that ministry because it's a gift given to somebody. The missions team, hospitality teams, women's fellowship. One day we'll have a men's fellowship. Lord willing. And also, there's a new ministry called the Shalom Airport Ministry. Jose Diaz, one of our new deacons, came to us and he said, I have a passion for doing something at the airport. I want to go there once a week or once a month or something. He'll explain it to you. You can talk to him. And I want to welcome visitors to Montreal. Hand out information at a booth that you can, you can actually get. The airport supplies it. There's a ministry. Because somebody says, you know, God's given me this idea, you know, and I, I want to explore it and see if anybody else in church has the same kind of idea, and we can do it together. Because that's what God has gifted the church with. Now, we want to see everybody in this church, every member, develop in their own gifts and their own abilities and service. Because gifts are given by God for all of our service, to bless each other. So in the coming next six months into year 2019, we're going to be going through the uh, membership renewal process again. As we do this, your deacon 
will be coming to you. We'll pray with you. We'll talk to you to help you discover, to figure out what you want to do and put together like-minded people for that to happen. Now, you don't need to wait for us to come to you. You can come to us. If you've got an idea for ministry, come. Talk to us. Don't be shy. Because what God has put in your heart is what we need to hear. You know, perhaps one of God's purposes is for you to commit to this church as a member, to begin to serve with this community, to say, yeah, I want to belong here. I want to commit myself to serve. Perhaps you're not a member of God's family yet. If that's the case, then come talk to us about how you can know God personally and then begin to live out your eternal purpose because it always begins with Christ. So, Paul knew his time was almost at an end. He knew that Timothy would carry on his ministry, at least at the church at Ephesus. So Paul encourages Timothy to fulfill the purpose that God gave him through the gifts that he was provided. He encouraged Timothy to fan that flame, to keep it alive, to find it and keep it alive. So I'm going to leave you with one last question. If you could do anything in this church for ministry, what would it be? It's wide open. Don't restrict it. Just What's the first thing that comes to your mind? As you hear that question, what, what would you want to do? What's your heart's passion? What's your interest? What are you good at? What brings you joy? What brings you satisfaction? I know that the times I've been most satisfied in the Lord is when I'm serving Him and I watch Him do things. How you answer this question could be a reflection of God's gift for you and how He wants you to serve. Now it's up to you and those around you to begin the process of finding out this purpose that you have in Christ. And through that purpose to glorify the Father. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. That because of Jesus, you have enabled us to be able to come to you and to worship you and to know you and to explore all there is that's in your being. And Father, thank you through your spirit that you have have called us for a purpose to bring glory to you in a whole variety of ways that you have already foreseen. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for every person here who hears this message, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might see through your eyes what you see in them, and that they would be willing, God, to explore with you why you made them and how they can serve you. In this I pray, Jesus. Amen.